from the National Association of Evangelicals, welcome to today's conversation. Our topic, the state of human trafficking. Host Leif Anderson, NAE president, talks with Gary Haugen, CEO and founder of International Justice Mission. Let's join in. I'm Leif Anderson, president of the NAE, here with Gary Haugen. Many are familiar with Gary Haugen and the work of International Justice Mission, so maybe an introduction really isn't needed. His work has been featured by countless media outlets. He has shared about IJM and ending slavery, trafficking, and violence against the poor on the TED stage at the World Bank, before Congress and U.S. presidents, and other heads of state. Gary was recognized by the U.S. State Department as a trafficking in persons hero the highest honor given by the U.S. government for anti-slavery leadership. Before founding IJM, he was a human rights attorney for the U.S. Department of Justice and served as the director of the United Nations investigation in the aftermath of the Rwandan genocide. He is highly qualified to help us understand what's going on with human trafficking. Thanks for joining us in this conversation. Great to be with you, Lee. So, Gary, let's just begin with a basic understanding of terms. What do we mean when we're talking about human trafficking? Well, the term human trafficking is not a terribly helpful phrase, I don't think, because it can be confusing. And most helpful way to think about it is human trafficking really is just slavery. It's the idea of forcing another human being to do work for you. Now, they call it trafficking because in a lot of ways you think of moving products around to market and so on. And it's just the weird idea of moving a human being around to market to be sold as a commodity. But what was really meant by human trafficking is the manner in which um, people are forced by violence or fraud or coercion to do work for other people. And it's a crime. And what you should picture is just people being forced to work in brick factories or rice mills or on plantations or some of the ugliness of it comes also in the forcing people into the sex trade. So it's the buying and selling of human beings, forcing them into work, and it is actually just modern day slavery. So are child soldiers included in the category? Yeah, they are, because they're being forced by violence to provide the service as a soldier. So it covers child soldiers. It covers kids who are being forced to work on fishing vessels. It covers families that are forced to uh, work on farms. Any situation in which uh, a human being is being forced by violence and threats to provide work for another person, then that person gets all the profits from it, and it's this ancient institution uh, and, of course, you even see in the Old Testament times uh, where you can force somebody by violence to do work for you, and then you make money off of it. This, of course, has been made illegal everywhere in the world, but the problem now is that those laws are just simply not enforced. And there are actually more people in slavery today than in any other time in history. The best estimates are about 46 million people held illegally in slavery today. Yeah, that's both breathtaking and heartbreaking. So IJM partners in the work that you do with local authorities, with uh, law enforcement, in order to rescue victims. So that's a way to bring criminals to justice and restore survivors, strengthen the justice system. But 
the practical question, how do you actually do this? As in, what role does IGM play in partnering with local authorities? And this is, there's so many questions here. And how did you get started? Did you just call up the local police in some country and say, we want to help? How does this actually work? Yeah, well, IJM is now the largest international anti-slavery organization in the world, but it began very, very simply, and that is just providing very direct service to victims of slavery. And what does that mean? From a biblical perspective, it means doing unto others as you would want done unto you. So if you were held in a brick factory as a slave, or if your daughter was sold into a brothel and sex trafficking, what would you want someone to do? Well, the first thing is you want someone to find them. So that's the first thing IJM does, is we have teams around the world, local teams within their own communities, who do undercover investigations to actually find those who are being held in slavery. This is a crime, and so it's being hidden. And so it takes some technical expertise to be able to find them. So that's the first thing that we do. But then we bring that information to our secure police partners in those communities and work to actually rescue them out of that uh, abuse. That, the only one who could actually do that is, of course, the local authorities. So our local national teams uh, build positive working relationships with local law enforcement. And they work case after case after case. So we've now worked thousands of these individual cases where we do undercover investigations to find where they are, work with local authorities to get them out, and then critically get them to places of long-term aftercare. Because if you just rescue them out but then don't care for them, the, the odds are very high they will just be victimized again. So IJM works with a number of partners to make sure that they have long-term care. But it all began just very... Um, modestly by saying, sure, we may not be able to stop all of the slavery in the world, but can we not rescue these three young girls who are being serially raped inside the brothel? Can we not rescue those boys off those fishing boy boats who've been forced into slavery? And after doing that for a couple decades, thousands of times, we are actually now at the point to not only do these individual rescues at scale to be able to help other organizations be able to do it as well. But I think, Leith, we are actually at a moment in history for the first time ever where you could see the end of slavery as a force in human affairs. So let's go back to the beginning. Is this tied to your experience in Rwanda? I know that was 1994. Is that where the idea for this began? Yeah, that was a powerful experience uh, for me. In, in 1994, I was a prosecutor at the U.S. Department of Justice, and I was sent to Rwanda uh, and ended up serving as the director of the U.N.'s genocide investigation there. And, of course, that was just a horrific experience of trying to gather the evidence in the aftermath of that massive atrocity uh, to gather the evidence against the leaders of the genocide. And when you are doing that investigative work, what you're basically doing, of course, is you're trying to recreate what, what was it like um, when the, these murders were committed. As, as people might know, most of the, the murders were actually done in churches or schools and stadiums. And about 800,000 people were murdered in about eight weeks' time. And we were sorting through the carnage of that, and what struck me so powerfully, Leith, in the, 
in imagining and having to picture how these murders occurred is that family pressed up against that church wall watching those machetes make their way through their neighbors towards their family and in that moment of terror the way in which that family is not actually crying out for someone to bring them a sermon or food or a doctor or a job they want someone to restrain the violence and so what happened for me Leith, was to think well where is the christian ministry that is responding to the problem of violence my wife and i had supported many of our our friends who were working in church planting and evangelism who were working in food programs and addressing problems of of health care or dirty water and amongst the, the very poor but the question was where is the body of christ when the problem confronting the poor is the machete coming at them, is the violence. And that's a long way of saying that what I encountered in Rwanda was the very peculiar evil of violence, to see the way that that victimizes the poor and that it doesn't matter how much you give them in terms of assistance in trying to get out of poverty, because if the machetes are gonna come to steal the land, to throw you into slavery, to uh, steal your money from you that you uh, earned on your job, there's just no way you can get out of poverty. So what we found was one of the largest categories of violence against the poor was actually slavery. And so that is what led us in those early years to begin to take on these individual cases of trying to rescue people out of places of slavery. All right. All this ties into a quote. Uh, I'm sure you remember what you said, but... Um, there's a New Yorker article that quoted you as saying that the biggest problem on earth is not too little democracy or too much poverty or too few uh, antiretroviral AIDS medicines, but rather an absence of proper law enforcement. So talk about that, because within the evangelical community, we really do think a lot about addressing poverty and illness. We typically don't think about it in terms of law enforcement. So you're sort of spinning around a different angle here of perspective. Help us on that. Yeah, it is one of the sort of peculiar aspects of our era uh, in engaging the problem of poverty is that in many respects, we just miss the problem of violence against the poor. But if you think about it, in its most basic level, it just doesn't matter if someone brings you uh, assistance so you can have food or land or an education. If no one is restraining the hand of the criminals and the abusers in the community that steal the land, that steal away the fruit of your labor or your work or steals your children in the slavery, um, then none of that assistance really matter. And so it's just one of the very sort of fundamental needs of human beings is for basic safety. And what people have not understood is the way in which violence chronically afflicts the poor. And one of the reasons that we, we don't see it is because uh, violence is something that stays below the surface, right? So if you would go on a mission trip into the developing world and, and see poverty, what you're seeing is what you can see about poverty. You see the kids, oh, they definitely look hungry, they look ill-fed, they look um, 
ill-clothed, they, they maybe don't have schools or they don't have teachers and they certainly don't have any job prospects. Those are all, and they have, live in shacks and the water is dirty. Those are all the things that you see. You will rarely ever go into the developing world and see that those children are victims of horrific levels of sexual violence, that they are not even before you because they've been actually abducted into um, a trafficking ring or to see that their land has been stolen. Um, this is the violence that is always underneath the surface. But the United Nations did an amazing study uh, many years ago, and they uh, came to this following conclusion, quote, most poor people live outside the protection of law. Now, most people living in advanced economies like the United States and other places really don't have much of an idea of what it's like to live outside the protection of law. And the one way I'm always able to, to, to help us think about this is to tell a story of a young woman in Oregon who not long ago found herself alone in her home on a dark Saturday night in a rural area in her isolated house, and a man started to tear his way into her home to attack her. And she was terrified because this is the same man that had actually put her in the hospital two weeks before. And so she does what every American would do. She picks up the phone and she calls 911, only to have this incredibly awkward conversation with the 911 operator where the operator has to explain that due to budget cuts in her county, there is no law enforcement available and that no one would be able to come to help her. And so you can hear on the line uh, this conclusion of a conversation where she just has to say, I'm sorry, there's no one there to help you. And of course, that woman ends up being brutally assaulted and raped and strangled. And because that is what happens if there's no law enforcement in your area. So, Lise, what we need to realize about the two billion poor people in our world who live off less than $2 a day is that they live outside the protection of this kind of law, and they are therefore chronically vulnerable to all kinds of violence, and one of the most profitable forms of violence against the poor is to take them into slavery. So this is where Christians need in their growing appreciation of what it means to try to serve the poor, to try to be compassionate in their engagement with the poor, to understand that they are up against vicious forces of violence that not only cause terrible harm, but they also undermine the effectiveness of the poverty alleviation work that we would seek to do. I don't have words for that happening in America. We, we shouldn't have what you just described in a country as prosperous as ours. But then I think about developing countries and people that are rural. What does the government in a developing country think of this? And I mean, do you find cooperation with law enforcement or are they resistant to what you're trying to do? Well, it's been a fascinating journey over these last two decades because we've learned a, a, a number of things. That yes, in every country that we work, you can find very committed government officials who want to protect their common citizens from this kind of violence. And so part of what we do is, is find those champions within these developing world countries who are faithfully trying to do the right thing and to come alongside them with support and encouragement and capacity building so that they can actually not only bring effective rescue to 
individual victims in their community, but begin to transform the brokenness of their own criminal justice system. Because I think it's pretty clear now that in, if you go into the developing world, there's lots of systems that are, are broken. The education systems can be broken, the health systems, but there is no more broken system in the developing world than the basic system of law enforcement. One of the most hopeful things for us is to realize that every criminal justice system that we have in the world actually has had to go through a process of transformation. If you were to go back and look at the police and court systems in the United States or in France or in any of the advanced economies 150 years ago, uh, you would find it in, mired in a struggle against corruption and the brutal abuse of that police power by political factions. Exactly the same circumstances that you find in the developing world. And so the developing world is going to have to go through this tremendous struggle to transform its justice system so they actually serve the common poor person. And there's an opportunity for the church to be part of that fight because in advanced economies, especially in the United States, it was an amazing story to go back 100, 150 years ago when we had to build police forces and court systems that actually helped and served the common citizen. That was a struggle that the church was a leading voice in um, in, pa in, the, in the past century. And it's a role that the church can play now as the developing world uh, goes through that same transformation. All right, that's a big picture. So let's narrow that picture down specifically to human trafficking, where it seems like in the last several years, there's been lots of energy and passion, documentaries, celebrities have gotten involved, the White House, uh, and the evangelical community. So everybody from members of my own family to here in the community where I live are engaged and really care. And my question is whether or not all of this is making a difference. What what has changed? What's different now than it was a decade or for you two decades ago? Yes, there's been a tremendous change leaf in the level of awareness. And everything starts with awareness if you're going to address a problem, right? But nothing actually changes just because of awareness. But nothing will ever change until there is awareness. So we are at that point where now there is sufficient awareness to actually make a change in the world and to actually address slavery and actually end it, I think, in a generation that's actually alive right now. But there's a couple important things that, that, that have to happen. Number one, we need to understand that slavery is not caused by poverty. This has become a, a difficult thing for people to understand because they would look at the people who are slaves, and they would see, oh, overwhelmingly they come uh, from very poor communities and they were, uh, they were uh, desperately poor people. And so then it looks like slavery is a uh, consequence of poverty, sort of the way you would look at malaria deaths in the world. And you'd see, oh, 90% of uh, malaria deaths occur amongst poor people, so it must be that poverty causes malaria deaths. Well, of course, poverty doesn't cause malaria deaths. Mosquitoes do, who are carrying the, um, the malaria disease. But the difference between the poor and other people is that the poor don't get protected from the malaria-carrying mosquito. 
And similarly, for slavery, it's not that poverty causes slavery. It's just that poor people don't get the protection of the law from the criminals who enslave them. So one of the amazing things now is that we now live in a historic era where slavery is against the law everywhere in the world. But we have still massive levels of slavery because those laws aren't actually enforced. In South Asia, for example, least where more than half of the, the world's slaves are in South Asia, but in those communities, if you enslave a poor person, you commit the crime of actually taking somebody into forced labor slavery for you, you are actually at greater risk of being struck by lightning than you are of ever having that law enforced against you in a way that will send you to jail. So in these countries, in especially uh, South Asia, Southeast Asia, uh, parts of Africa and, and Latin America, uh, where the vast levels of, of slavery take place, it's always caused by really a single factor, and that is impunity. That is to say you can get away with it. So now, now that the world is aware, the solution is really quite straightforward, is to move governments to actually effectively enforce their own laws. Because now we have examples that we've actually been able to study around the world where when laws are actually enforced, you see slavery as measured by, um, by prevalence studies, slavery actually falls 70, 80 or more percent after four or five years of actually sending uh, the slave traders and traffickers to jail. So if you think that Slavery is caused by poverty. Then you would think, well, we've got to solve poverty until we can end slavery. That's just not the case. And it actually delays the advances that we can make against slavery. What we need to understand is that slavery is a crime, that it stops when the criminals think they can't get away with it. And so right now, the urgent need is to move the global community into partnership with governments around the world and to say, you know what, it's time to stop this. You have to actually enforce your laws against slavery. How are countries pressured to do that? I mean, are they looking to do this, or are there economic or other pressures from the UN or the US or the EU? What motivates a country to make this shift? Fantastic question. What we've seen over the last 20 years is that much of the pressure has come from uh, governments that have, on a diplomatic basis, said, uh, if we're going to partner with you, a country, uh, especially with economic aid and so forth, you need to take seriously the problem of slavery within your borders. So this is one of the things that the United States government does, for instance, through its office to combat and monitor trafficking in persons. It's called the TIP office. And it's super important because every year it actually rates the countries around the world, and especially the ones that receive assistance from the United States, as to whether they're meeting even minimum standards in addressing uh, uh, slavery. And if they don't, they can be at risk of losing some of that assistance uh, that they appreciate from the United States. And so over the last two decades, the United States and other governments uh, and international bodies like the UN and UNICEF and the European Union, they have expressed to these uh, countries where they're not enforcing their laws that, hey, this matters to us and this, important, this is important. And it actually brings a lot of change. In Cambodia, for instance, 
where 15 years ago I could walk down the streets of, of slums outside Phnom Penh and in 30 minutes easily find a, a child sex trafficking uh, victim. Um, the international community, the, the U.S. tip office and others applied pressure on Cambodia and said, hey, uh, you need to address this. And then we were able to partner with local Cambodian authorities. They stood up local law enforcement capacities to address it. And now we've seen a massive decline of child sex trafficking in Cambodia. I will also add to that, though, Lisa, that there's another really important force for change that I think is going to be where all a great deal of the future uh, motivation is going to come, and that's from the corporate sector. Corporations now around the world carry massive brand exposure if they have slavery in their supply chain. So you take a retailer that is um, selling uh, fish, for instance, or other kinds of products, um, or cell phones that have some kind of mineral component in it, and people can trace back and find, huh, these components or these fish or these products actually came from a, a process that, in, that included slaves way down the supply chain. And one of the great things now, Lisa, about the, the, the rising awareness is that consumers care about this. And consumers are now sending a signal out that says, hey, I don't want the fish, I don't want the dress, I don't want the chocolate that comes from slavery. And so corporations are freaking out about this and they're saying, oh my gosh, this is massive exp uh, reputational exposure for us. And we've been able to now go to those uh, big brands and, and really important corporate players and say, hey, you should do what you can to clean up your supply chain and consumers will want you to do that. But look, as long as you are working in a country that's not even bothering to enforce their own laws against slavery, you're bearing all the reputational risk of that, and, and, and yet you're not able to, on your own, enforce the laws against slavery. So why don't you do this? Why don't you go to these governments and go to them and say, hey, we love providing jobs and economic growth in your country, but what would really help us is if you began to actually effectively enforce your laws against slavery so we don't bear that risk. And here's an organization called International Justice Mission that can actually help you do that. It turns out that these governments in the developing world care more about these corporate brands and the economic actors than they actually even do about the diplomatic outreach of a lot of, of government interaction. And that this is going to be a very powerful force bringing about change. And the important key to this, least, is that those corporate actors care about this for one reason. Well, they want to do good things, so that that's true. But powerfully for them, it's the bottom line that their consumers are not going to tolerate this. So this is another reason why the awareness and the fact that consumers actually care is going to end up transforming this fight. And this is what happened with Blood Diamonds, isn't it? I mean, it got the attention of the world and really sort of changed the industry, right. actually registering the diamonds and affecting the countries and the mines and the laborers that are there. Precisely. Well, let's go back to something you said uh, earlier, and that is rescuing somebody is good, but there's the risk that if they're in this same social and legal system that they're going to be trapped again. They're going to return, be forced to return to where they were before. 
So IJM is doing some aftercare work for those who are rescued. What does that look like? Yeah, so if you have been in slavery, uh, you just can't be rescued out and then find yourself well prepared to move forward in life. Um, this should be obvious for a number of reasons, but it, especially as you get close to the trauma, get close to the crushing power of slavery on the psychology and on the well-being of a person, uh, we have to walk the journey of seeing survivors of slavery actually brought to a place of, uh, of strength so that they can carry on in freedom. And so that takes very intentional uh, effort to provide them with aftercare services. And this is what IJM does. And we do it for different categories of people in slavery. So children, for instance, who've been held in sex trafficking, they need very intense residential aftercare for many, many years that addresses the trauma, that addresses the education gaps, that addresses the economic uh, vulnerability. Because if those aren't addressed, uh, the vast majority will just be re-victimized. But the encouraging part, Lee, is that we now have programs that can provide extraordinarily excellent aftercare services and so that at rates of more than 90%, they never are re-victimized back into, into slavery. So that's true both for sex trafficking, but it's also true for people who once been slaves in rock quarries or brick factories or, 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 or fishing boats. So it does require actually years of very intentional care IJM does this along with its partners. And where we have been able to combine excellent law enforcement with great aftercare services, we not only find that more than 90% of the slaves never get re-trafficked, but we also find that between 70 and 80% or more of the trafficking collapses because the traffickers and the slaveholders just don't want to bear the risks and the survivors believe they actually have a future. And that's when the, the fear equation changes so that no longer are the, the poor afraid of being taken into slavery, but now it's the traffickers who are afraid of going to jail. And when that slavery and when that fear equation ch changes like that, slavery goes away. I hear Christians and churches really caring about this. So you're an authority. Give some specific things that Christians can do that really will make a difference. Well, the first thing they can do that will really make a difference is just make sure that they and their friends and neighbors are aware. And the, the first thing is to, is to make it clear to people and to their neighbors and the people at the church, hey, we are living at a time as Christians in which there are more people in the enslaved in the world today than at any other time in human history. That tends to wake people up. It's the idea that about 11 million slaves were trafficked out of Africa during 400 years of the transatlantic slave trade. Well, there's more than four times that number of slaves in the world today. So uh, that's the first point. The second is to partner with organizations that are actually addressing the problem in a way that measurably reduces the amount of slavery that there is in the world. This is a big change uh, that I think is going to take place over the next decade, least, is for churches and Christians of goodwill to ask, 
it, are there interventions in fighting against slavery that actually measurably reduces the amount of slavery? So if you're partnering with um, or, or exploring a partnership with um, organizations that are in the fight against um, uh, slavery, there should always be the question asked, what's the evidence that you're able to see that your intervention is actually lowering the amount of slavery? So that's the, that's the second thing. And the third thing is to use their voice as consumers and voters to make sure that um, the leaders of, of industry and of commerce and the leaders of government are prioritizing this issue. So I would say for Christians who really want to be engaged, be aware. And one of the first things that we would encourage about that is to encourage your church to be part of Freedom Sunday. Um, IJM is helping mobilize hundreds of churches around the world who are taking one Sunday and committed to the conversation about slavery. If there's more slaves than ever, and to ask, well, what does God think about that? And how does God call his people to respond? So if people would be interested in sort of joining that movement, uh, that will take place on a global basis in September of 2017 on September 24th. But it's also something we're doing on an annual basis in September that we're just going to have a Freedom Sunday until there's no more slavery because the church needs to not only wake up itself to the tragedy, but also engage the fight to end it. So that's the first thing is awareness. Join up with Freedom Sunday. Join IJM or another uh, uh, anti-trafficking organization that actually is lowering the amount of slavery in the world. And then lift your voice, uh, both as a consumer and a voter. And then finally, engage this in prayer. Go to Almighty God with the burden and the grief of slavery in the world and ask him to work to his people to bring an end in our lifetime. On Freedom Sunday, is there a website? How can people get more information about that? Yeah, exactly. If folks just go to IJM and they go Freedom Sunday, those two things will take them to our website where they can get all the tools they need for being able to pull off a Freedom Sunday at their church. Gary, one last question. Um, you, you've really given a lot of hope. I mean, this is a bleak picture and your, your faith, your hope, your optimism, your strategic view of all this is wonderful and amazing and encouraging. So how about a success story? a story of hope where it actually turned out right? Well, you know, I could tell you many, many stories of individual uh, children who I know by name who've been rescued out of these places of just horrific abuse. I remember um, uh, a young woman from Southeast Asia who was rescued out of a horrific brothel in the early days of IJM who now um, has uh, not only been able to graduate from university, she now has her graduate degree in social work, and she is actually uh, dedicating her life to trying to care for victims of this kind of abuse. So I could tell you so many stories like that. But what I'm also starting to see for the first time, Lise, is that whole countries are starting to be transformed. In in is the Philippines where we, where we took on one of these projects on a, on a citywide basis. 
we started a project in the city of Cebu, the second largest city in the Philippines, which had a horrible problem of child sex trafficking. And the Gates Foundation gave us some money to try and pursue a five-year project of standing up local law enforcement where you actually enforce the law and you actually provide good services to the survivors of child sex trafficking. And over four years, we were able to rescue hundreds of these kids and send about 100 sex traffickers to jail. Now, the goal of that project with the Gates Foundation was to show a 20% reduction in the sex trafficking of children in that city, in that mega city. And at the end of the project, when the auditors came to see, well, what's the impact? They didn't find a 20% reduction in child sex trafficking. They found a 79% reduction in child sex trafficking. This was just the objective evidence that the people who enslave children are not brave. And that once they have a fear of going to jail, they actually leave the children alone. So not only do we have the hope that these children can be restored and now be at a place where they get a graduate degree and actually work to the healing and restoration of others, we can see a whole city. And now in places like the Philippines, where this has been replicated in the two other major cities, or in a whole nation like Cambodia, that a whole country can be transformed so that no longer do its children need to live under the fear of massive and brutal levels of, of, of human trafficking. This, um, Leith, is the story that we're just so eagerly uh, wanting to share with the body of Christ that there is still a God of justice in the world. He calls us to seek justice, to rescue the oppressed, to defend the orphan, to plead for the widow. He also says that he never gives us a, a ministry without the power of his Holy Spirit to do it. So with this hope, we're just hoping that Christians all around the world will take up the moment of history that God has placed before us to fight for the end of slavery until all are free. Our guest on today's conversation has been Gary Haugen, CEO and founder of International Justice Mission. I'm Leith Anderson, and on behalf of us all, very special thanks to Gary. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we connect and represent evangelical Christians in the United States. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please follow along on Twitter at NAEvangelicals or on our Facebook page for the National Association of Evangelicals. And sign up for our email list when you visit our website at nae.net.